The Psalms are a well-worn collection of songs, hymns, and prayers that speak to the human experience. Life is not a level path. In this world, we will experience joy, sorrow, anger, shame, love, jealousy, hope, and more. Emotions are a gift and a part of our God-given design. But how do we direct these emotions and keep our eyes fixed on God in the highs and lows of life? King David authored many psalms, and we will learn how to steward our lives well in the highest highs and the lowest lows as we study through some of his greatest hits. Well, good morning, church. If you've been with us this summer, then you've uh, joined us on this journey as we have traveled through some of the Psalms of David. We've seen some of those high highs and some of those low lows that he's gone through, and yet we've seen him take those emotions and those struggles, every situation, and bring it to the Lord as he wrestles through what God is doing and how he might align his heart with what God's will is in a situation. And today we're actually bringing this summer series to a close. And so um, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 86. That's where we'll be this morning. But if you weren't with us last week, um, there's no real way I can, I can describe how great last week was. We were out here in the, the grass area and had an opportunity for people to respond to what the Lord has done in their life through this proclamation that baptism is. Um, and and what a powerful day it was, just to see the heart of um, Christ coming out and seeing His Spirit move within the, the lives of people here at church. Those are Sundays you don't soon forget, uh, where God is clearly moving and people are responding. And so, um, with that, I just want to make something clear this morning, because I loved all the conversations I've had this last week after that baptism of people asking, when are we doing that again? And I love that question. The short answer is, whenever you want, okay? There have been people that have been baptized immediately following a Sunday in the river. There have been people that have been baptized in a pool, a time we scheduled to go and do it. There have been people that have waited until we have another one of these more services surrounding a baptism. But what I don't ever want you to think is that I really want to get baptized, but I guess I have to wait till next year. Absolutely not, okay? The same way that on Sunday we told you, Hey, if the Lord's prompting you to get baptized, let's make that happen today. Um, We believe that every single Sunday. And so if the Lord's prompting you to get baptized and you want to do that, come and chat with us. You can talk in the office or you could just grab myself or Jason and we'd love to figure out a time to make that happen. If you want to wait because you're really wanting to do it with the full family here in a service style, our plan is to try and to do this twice a year. And so there'll be another one coming uh, probably around January. Most likely that's going to be indoors. It'll be a little different experience if we were to do that outside. But there will be another one of those coming. But I never want you to think that the Lord's prompting me to do this, but I have to wait until there's another one scheduled. No, we're, we're happy to do that anytime and every time as the Lord leads, okay? So I just want to make that clear for all of you. And also, maybe like some of you parents, you went home and you had kids the whole way that were just frustrated that you wouldn't let them get baptized, Uh, I had a son like that who would have loved to have run up and gotten into that water. But there was a conversation that needed to happen prior to that. And there needed to be some explanation. And and you want to know that your kids really understand what they're doing. And we 
we're all here for that. I get that. I'm doing that with my own children. Um, but when you feel like they're ready, once again, we're, we're more than willing and excited to be a part of that baptism experience. So just know that that is ready and available when you are. Well, this morning we're in Psalm 86. You can turn there and join me at verse 1 where we'll begin and we'll read through this entire chapter. It begins with this, Bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life, and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word this morning, God, as we dig into this psalm of David and once again see a very similar struggle to what we've seen at times before, God, we pray that you would give us a fresh perspective with spiritual eyes to see the truth within your word. God, we celebrate your work that you did last week, but God, we also come hungry and desiring to see you do a fresh work today. Lord, would you speak through your word, and would your word meet the hearts of a people who are united? to fear your name. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write down a title, you can write this down, The Good and Ready God. The Good and Ready God. That's what we're going to see. Those are the words taken straight from this psalm this morning. But I wonder if you've ever used that phrase before, good and ready, when being asked to do something. Right? It, it simply means when you're totally prepared, available, or willing, 
You're completely ready. And typically it's used when you don't want to be rushed. When someone comes up and says, can we hurry up and go do this? I'll go when I'm good and ready to go, right? For me, it's, it's maybe when my kids want to get up far too early in the morning. I will get up when I'm good and ready to get up. That we won't be rushed. And when we are completely ready, totally prepared, available to go and do this next thing, we use this phrase that we are good and we are ready for what that next task may be. Now, our psalm today, we don't know the exact time period or season of David's life that this takes place in. In fact, if you know much of David's story, there were many times he's facing struggle, many times that he's crying out and appealing to God's mercy, and many times when there's a very real enemy that is seeking his life. We don't know the specific time this is within our text. And although much of what we read in this psalm will feel very familiar with other psalms we've read before, there are some unique elements that are worth mentioning and taking some time to look at this morning. There's a bit of a teeter-totter, if you will, um, effect taking place within this psalm. There are moments that David's sitting there focusing on his own weakness, his need for God's mercy and strength and his struggle with this enemy. And then there's this totter that happens where then he just begins to look at the Lord and how good God is and his strength for what David's going through and how everyone one day will worship God and he is holy and worthy of it. And then he goes back to, but here's my struggle, Lord, and and God, I cry out to you and please listen to me and hear what's going on. But then he teeters back and he says, but God, there's none like you and there's no other God that works like you. And then he'll go back, but there's this mob that's coming against me, but God, we will worship you. And God, I look to you. There's this back and forth, which I think is a very healthy rhythm for us to practice within our prayers to the Lord. That there is this acknowledgement of what's going on. He's not just being ignorant to his situation. Oh, it's all good. It's not, David. It's no big deal. It's a great day. There's a mob trying to kill you. No big deal. It's just a Monday, right? There's an acknowledgement of what's going on around him and the struggle he's facing and the need for God's strength and mercy. But he doesn't just sit and wallow in that place. Then there's this acknowledgement of, but I know who God is. And I know that he's in control. And I know that nothing can stop his works. And there's this back and forth, this healthy rhythm we see within his prayer. And it begins in these first four verses where once again, as we've seen so often, David's approaching the Lord from a place of humility. This is how he comes before the Lord and brings his request. It's in humility. He begins by saying, Lord, would you bow down your ear to hear me? He's acknowledging you're above, you're in control, and I'm I'm, I'm pleading for your mercy and your grace that you would just... Bow down your ear that you would hear my prayer, that you would listen to me. He doesn't demand it, but he requests it. He acknowledges that he is poor and he is needy. Not that he's in this great power and strength and he's just asking God for a little handout. He says, I am bankrupt, God, without you. I'm coming to you desperate for your help. He asks that God would save his servant who trusts in him, that God would be merciful to him 
And he says, I cry out to you all day long. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. David's making very clear from the beginning here, not only his need, but where he's directing that to. And God is not a last-minute effort, hoping that maybe by some shot he'll help out. He says, I'm crying to you all day long, Lord. I know where my help needs to come from, and it needs to come from you. So morning, noon, and night, all day long, you're the one I'm looking to for help. But in verse 5, we see why this is David's response in his trouble. He says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Do you know why David, no matter what situation he's going through, whether it's one of suffering or one of celebration, whether it's one where he's celebrating the victory he is experiencing or he feels like he's in defeat because of his sin and the enemy against him, in all of that, he continues to bring it before the Lord because he believes God is good. And I know I've said it about 20 times, but I'm going to say it again. We need to remember that even when times are bad, God is still good. This will always be a point of attack by the enemy. Is God really good? This was how it all began in the garden when the serpent begins to ask Eve, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Or is he really good? Because he just doesn't want you to be like him. No, he's holding out on you. He's not really good. It's an attack we've seen all throughout Scripture. It's the way he still attacks us today. Is God really good if? Fill in the blank. How many people have you heard that don't want to step foot in this building, that don't ever want to approach God or acknowledge him? Because if God was really good, why is there all of this suffering, all of this death, all of this tragedy, all of this disease, all of this danger around us? Why is there evil if there's a good God? It is an attack that has gone on for centuries and will continue to go on. David, in the midst of a very bad situation, where he is on the run for his life, still acknowledges, but God, you are good. My situation may not be, but you are still good. You're above this. You came before this. You're going to be around long after this, God. And you are good, even if my situation is not. But not only is he a good God that is separated from everything I'm going through and doesn't care about what I'm experiencing, he is a good God that is ready to forgive. Is this how we approach the Lord when seeking forgiveness? Ask yourself, the last time you recognized this struggle in your life and this need for repentance, were you approaching the Lord in prayer, recognizing Him as a good God that is just ready to forgive you? Or did you go before Him like He's a really angry and bitter God that wants to give you a lecture? And so you're already walking in, I did this thing, please don't, I'm sorry, and here's how I'm going to make it up to you. And could you see him as a loving father that is good and ready to forgive? He's ready. He is good and ready. He's available. He's completely ready and willing to do so if you would just approach him and seek forgiveness. Because that's how good he is. 
And the problem is when we start to put our own response to when people wrong us on God. Hey, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that's not just speaking about His will and His plan. That's speaking of the way that He loves and is compassionate and forgives sinners like us. See, our ways are, we're going to hold it against that person. Oh, we're going to make them feel real bad for it. We're going to make them earn it, earn that forgiveness. No, but his ways are not our ways. He is rich in mercy. He is slow to anger. And he is ready to forgive. I think of the prodigal son and his father. And how do, how do we see the father approaching that son? Man, ready to forgive. Not waiting at the door, sitting there tapping his foot. Can't wait for the explanation from this son and the apology. No, he is running out to meet him. And he is throwing a celebration because his son that was dead is now alive. That's the way that our Heavenly Father approaches us when we come to him and seek forgiveness. He is ready and waiting for you to turn and respond. And we read here his mercy, it's not in short supply. His willingness is not lacking. His invitation is to anyone and everyone who would call upon him and seek forgiveness because he's a good God who is ready to forgive. And that's a message that a lot of people that aren't here today need to hear. He moves on in verse 6 to once again give a request to the Lord. He says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. This is the second time he's asking the Lord to turn his ear, give ear to my prayer. Isn't it true of us that one of our greatest desires when we're going through struggles and difficult times is just to know that God hears us, that God sees us, that God is listening and he will act on our behalf? David says, God, just I want to know you hear me. Would you just turn your ear and listen to me? There are people out to take my life that are unwilling to listen. They've shut their ears against me. They want blood. But God, I'm looking to you and I'm just asking. I'm appealing to your mercy, not because I deserve it, but I'm asking, please, will you just hear me? I just want to know that the God that is in control of everything knows my struggle. He sees my situation and he's going to respond. That's David's cry in this moment. His resolve, in the day of my trouble, God, I'm going to call out to you. When trouble's going down, prayers are going up. That's David's response. Things are bad, but God's still good. And so my response throughout the whole day, God, I'm coming back to you. God, I'm lifting this up to you. Lord, you see what they're doing. God, you see where I'm at. You know what's going on. Hear me, God. Answer my prayer. But I love the confidence that David adds in this prayer. He doesn't end it with, and I hope you do something about it. I really hope you are listening up there. He says, for you will answer me. There's that struggle with where he's at. There's that desire that God would listen, but there's that confidence because he's a good God who's ready to forgive and is abundant in mercy and slow to anger. And so I know you're going to answer me, God. Even if I don't feel it, even if I'm struggling to believe it, 
God, I know you will answer me. This is the statement of that man to Jesus that says, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I believe you will answer it, but please remind me once again that you hear and that you will answer. And there's this second pause where he has that teeter-totter shift again and looks upon who God is to bring comfort in this moment. Beginning in verse 8, he acknowledges, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. He starts by acknowledging the fact, among all the gods, there is none like you. And in David's time, much like today, there are idols in abundance. There are gods more than he could number that people are worshiping all around him. And he says, but in the vast number of every God that people are worshiping in this world, Lord, there is none like you. David sets God on his rightful throne where he belongs above all other things that people may worship. And not only because of his position, but even in, what, in his practice and how he works. He doesn't just say there's no God like you. There's also no works like your works. There's no mistaking the works of God that only He can do. Now, you can deny it, you can try and make excuse for them, but I'm here to tell you today, there are no works that compare to the works of our God. Now, this should increase the prayers of every believer in the building today when you remember that there is no one else that can do what your God can do. So in a situation, when you look around and say, I have no way of escape. I have no solution to this problem. I don't know how to get out of this, and I don't know anyone that can help me. You remind yourself that you serve a God that is unlike any other God, whose works are unlike any other works. And so if there's one place, without a doubt, no matter your situation, that you know you can go, it's to the Lord, the one who is unlike any other and the one whose works are unlike anyone else's works. I want to speak today to the person that is in the midst of a struggle, which I'm willing to bet is most of us, if not all of us. What you need today is not a strong man to do the work for you. What you need today is not a smart man that can solve the problem you can't. What you need today is not a rich man that can foot the bill that you can't afford. What you need today is not a clever man that can get you out of the situation you got yourself stuck into. What you need today is not an influential man that can shift the tides of the crowds and bring the motivation you need. What you need is a God omnipotent that no power can match. What you need is a God omniscient that no wisdom can prevail against. What you need is a God who is a provider, Jehovah Jireh, that has the cattle on a thousand hills and who is all-sustaining. What you need is a God totally sovereign that sees the end from the beginning and that has it all written in his perfect will. What you need is a God who even 
the winds and the waves obey, and that spoke everything we see into existence. David acknowledges what he needs in this moment, and it's not the help of another man. It's the help of the one who's unlike any other. It's the help of God. What your situation today needs is the help of a God whose works are not like our works and who can accomplish in a moment what we couldn't accomplish with all our strength in a lifetime. David says, and I know that God, and he's my Lord. He uses the name Adonai. He is my master. He is my ruler. He is the Lord over all. He is the one who possesses authority. And there is no one else and nowhere else and nothing else that can do what our God can do. And that is why David reminds himself here that one day all the nations that God has made will come and worship before him and glorify his name. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. There is no other God that gets that worship and that praise. There is no other one worthy of that except for Jesus alone because he is great. And what I love here is that David began by saying, you are good and ready to forgive. But he doubles down here and says, well, you are good, but you are also great. And as I think about how far above every other God you are and how much greater your works are than every other work, I can't just say good. I've got to say great because God, you are great. And he does wondrous things. So what does David ask of the Lord in response to that as he sits and is just in amazement of how great and good God is? He says, teach me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. He says, unite my heart to fear your name. That's his response. God, your ways are so much greater than my ways. Your works are so much better than my works. So God, teach me your ways. He starts with this request. God, teach me. David recognizes your ways are not naturally my ways, and so I need to be taught them. I need to learn from you as a disciple, as a a learner, as a student. I need to come before you with that desire. I hope that's the desire you have every time you open this word and you sit down before the Lord as a student that says, God, teach me your ways. I wonder who is teaching you and what is the message they're teaching you? What are the ways they're leading you towards? Every one of us is being taught by someone or something through what you listen to, through what you watch, Through where you study and what you study, someone is teaching you at all times. What is the message they're teaching you? And does it align with His ways? Far too often, we're allowing people to teach us a message that is far from His ways. But because it's entertaining or because it's convenient, it's the message we listen to. Now, David's desire in this moment, God, I want to know your ways and your ways alone. Teach me your ways. I don't want to know the way things just go around here and the way things are and the ways of my culture. I want to be about your kingdom 
and your kingdom's culture. So teach me that way and how I work and how I live and how I love and how I act and think and behave. God, I want your ways, not my own. And what I love is that David is not just desiring to have a greater knowledge that can puff him up. He says, teach me your ways, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. See, this is the response. It started with a request that he would know God's ways, but it brings him to a response so that he can walk in God's ways. Knowledge puffs up, but it is love that edifies. He desires more than just to know God's ways. He wants to live and behave in those ways. He wants to walk as Jesus walks, even before Jesus had lived. I hope that is our desire as we approach the Word, as we go before the Lord in prayer, as you come on a Sunday morning, that you're not coming up to get a lesson that you can lock in here so that you can answer questions later, but that this is something that you desire to learn so that you could walk in it. God, teach me your ways. I will walk in your truth, which means when we come to God's word and when he teaches us his ways and it doesn't align with the way we're living, the thing that needs to change is us. We don't look for somebody that can interpret the word differently so that it can align with our ways. We've acknowledged, God, your ways are not my ways, so teach me your ways. And when you do and when your instructions don't align with the things I'm saying, and the things I'm standing for, and the way I define good and evil, then my ways need to change because I'm walking in your truth. That is David's desire. I want to learn your truth so I can live the truth because the truth will set you free. But then comes the requirement, a request, a response, But the requirement is, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Because if my heart is divided, I won't want to hear your truth. And if my heart is divided, even if I hear your truth, I won't want to walk it out. And if I've got one foot in the world and one foot in your church, in a moment where the rubber meets the road and there's a difficult decision I have to make, I know my heart is prone to wander Lord, I need my heart to be united to fear your name. This last week, I got to share with the youth group as David's out of town. And we were looking at Jesus in the garden with his disciples. Men who, with their words, were united to follow Christ. Men who said, oh, we'll die for you. Peter, I'll never die. I'll never deny you. No, I'm going to die for you. And he gets all the crowd riled up and all the guys are high-fiving and saying, yeah, we'll never deny you. And then all of a sudden we find them in the garden. Jesus says, wait here and pray. Sit here and watch as I go and pray. And time and time again, what does he find them doing? They're sleeping. They're distracted. And then in a moment where He's walking out the will of the Father and he's going to save all of humanity as he's betrayed and led away. What does Peter do? Comes out swinging and chops off an ear, thinking Jesus needs to be saved when Jesus is saving Peter. But in all of this, Jesus very clearly calls this out when he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And I see Peter with a desire truly to follow God, and yet at moments his heart is divided. Like the moment we find him three times denying Jesus as Lord, because the fear of man is greater than his fear of God. David's desire here is that God would unite our hearts to fear his name above every other name. Was it not Jesus' greatest commandment that he gave the people, but that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength? If we truly want to allow God to teach us his word and be a student of it, one that walks it out because his word is truth, we need a united heart that fears his name. And that unity comes by his spirit in the bond of peace. And that unity only comes when we are a broken people that come before the Lord and allow him to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. David here says, Lord, I need you to unite my heart to fear your name so that I might seek you for the truth and walk it out in my life. It reminds me of a song I grew up hearing in church that we would sing a worship song you probably don't hear too often anymore, but it's this song, Lord, I need an undivided heart. I want to read you a few of those lines. It says, if I'm to be whom you desire all throughout my life, a vessel unto honor, Lord, to thee. And before your throne to hear you say that I have done my part, Lord, I need an undivided heart, that I might know you, that I might serve you, that I might worship you as king, to see the morning star, to know how great you are. Lord, I need an undivided heart. If I'm to live in truth and love, to glorify your name, if for a living sacrifice to be, and to share the joy, the grace, and peace your spirit does impart, Lord, I need an undivided heart. And it continues back to that chorus, that I might know you, that I might serve you, that I might worship you as king. And I know as you hear those words, what you're thinking Praise the Lord that he's our teacher, pastor, and not our worship leader. <laughs> no, but that constant reminder that I love throughout that song, that Lord, what we need is an undivided heart. We need a heart united to fear your name. There are so many distractions in the world that will try and pull your heart towards lesser things. There are so many doubts that we can wrestle with that can cause us to only half-heartedly come before the Lord, doubting before we even pray the words that he could really make a change in our lives. No, but David says truly what we need is a united heart to fear his name. And this may be odd for some of you if you're not familiar with this idea of fearing God. Why on earth do I want a united heart that fears Him? This is not a fear that is meant to push you away. This is a fear that is meant to draw you in. Listen to how Psalm 25, 14 puts it. I love how the ESV words this. It says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Or how about in Jeremiah 32? 
37 through 39, when we read, Behold, this is the Lord speaking, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart, there's that united heart, and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. No, this fear of God is not something we should push against. It's something we should welcome because it is reserved for the family of God. It is a fear rooted in knowing this loving, kind, gracious, good, and willing to forgive Heavenly Father, yet also recognizing His justice, His wrath, and His anger against sin and His enemy that causes us to want to stay close to Him and stay in a right standing with Him. It's a fear, we could say, that dreads even the idea of walking away from Him because we know the holy and righteous God that He is, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so to walk away from Him is to walk away from all that is true, all that is right. It's to walk away from life itself. It's the reason Peter declared, where else can I go because you have the words of eternal life That's the fear of God speaking. There's nowhere else I can find this. And he says our hearts need to be united in that kind of fear. And what we see in this next verse is that David is already applying that which he is praying for. We saw this last week when he he cried out to the Lord and commanded his soul by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. To resist your resistance of God, to doubt your doubts of unbelief, to rebel against your sinful rebellion, and to call your soul into submission with a united heart to fear his name. Because look what David says in verse 12. After he's just prayed, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. And then he says, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify your name forevermore. Even in the same breath where he has asked that his divided heart would be united to fear God He states that he will, without hesitation, praise God and that he will do so with all his heart. Oh, that's a righteous resolve that we could learn from today. That's a spiritual discipline that I believe is lacking today. To pray for faith and strength to do what we know we must, but then with the resolve to do so with the confidence that God will supply your every need. It's putting your faith into action. And it's not saying, God, I'm going to wait until I feel like it. God, I'm going to wait until I feel you do something or I see you working. God, I believe you are good and you're ready to forgive. And I believe your desire is that my heart would be united to fear your name. And so I'm going to worship you with all my heart. And Lord, help me to do so. Unfortunately, far too often, our obedience is waiting for the desire when typically what we see happening is that that desire is following obedience. Instead of saying, Lord, give me the desire and then I'll do this, we do what we know to be right and we allow him to bring the desire as we continue to do so. 
David says, my heart feels divided. God, I need you to unite it. But even now in this struggle, I'm going to worship you with all that I have. I'm going to give my entire heart to you, even in this wrestle and this struggle, because you deserve wholehearted praise. And David has said before that he's not going to offer anything to the Lord that costs him nothing. Lord, I want to give you my whole heart in worship and praise. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David never sees what he offers to the Lord as being him as the initiator. He always recognizes that the praise and worship he offers God is always a response to what God has already done for him. We love him because he first loved us. And David says, I'm responding with praise and worship, God, because you've saved my soul from death. Everything we do is a response to what he's already done for us. And even if we were to spend every last breath of every day of our lives praising him, it would still never equal to the amount of what we've received and the amount that is due to our God. In verse 14, he once again acknowledges his struggle when he says, The proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and not set you before them. There is a very real enemy out there coming after David. Do you realize today there is a very real enemy out to get you? There is a spiritual warfare that goes on each and every day. And there are those being used by the enemy each and every day of our lives to try and stop and thwart what God is doing and the truth that is being spread. My hope is that as we acknowledge that each and every morning, that we realize, as Peter says, that we are to be sober-minded and be vigilant and to realize that the enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do we get up and walk out our door every day realizing there is a very real enemy that is seeking to devour whomever he can and going throughout our day with the kind of vigilance and sober-mindedness that a person would if they knew there was a lion out there? I remember going for a run one time when I lived in Southern California and I was up in the hills and I was trying to clear my head and so I just went out by myself put in my headphones and just went for a long run down this trail. And it wasn't until I got about three miles out maybe that I ran into some people that quickly flagged me down. And they told me that they had just talked to the ranger and that there were a whole group of mountain lions that they had seen in this area. And so they're telling everybody they need to head back and they need to stay in groups and not be by themselves. And I said, okay, well, where are you guys going? Well, we're heading down this trail. And I'm like, well, that's not the trail I need to go down which means I need to head back by myself down this trail. Let me tell you, the, the run back was not only swifter, but the headphones were off, and I was vigilant around every corner because I didn't know where the mountain lion might be. Every turn, every decision, every sound I was aware of because I knew there was something out there that I did not want to meet. And if it so desired, it could easily overtake me. Peter challenges us to treat life in that way and realize this is Peter who is writing this after he has gone through his experience with Jesus in the garden. 
the man who was not vigilant, who was not sober-minded. So when Jesus says, you need to be praying because temptation is coming, and he continues to sleep, he cuts off a guy's ear, he denies Jesus three times, he's saying, guys, learn from my example. I was the one that got away from the flock that got devoured. Man, learn from my example and be vigilant, be sober-minded. Don't play with sin. Don't joke around with your struggles and temptation. There is an enemy that is seeking to devour you, and you know the one the lion always gets, and it's the one that's not paying attention. It's the one that strays a little bit away. There's a very real enemy. May we be a people that are sober-minded, that take seriously the temptation of sin around us. But he acknowledges again in verse 15, you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. In contrast to this wicked, angry mob that don't seek or fear the Lord, David doesn't sit and try and reason with the enemy. He doesn't try and calm the crowd that is against him. No, he looks to the Lord, the one who is in control. He looks to the one who does seek justice, the one who has his well-being in mind. What if we were to spend less time arguing and fighting with the enemy and spent more time going to the one to whom we know the truth lies in, the one who's ultimately in control? The way David describes God in this verse, it shows that he knew his scriptures because it's a very clear, rooted statement from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Listen, you'll see the comparison in what David has just declared of the Lord and what we read here. And the Lord passed before him, this is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. David remembers back to this moment. He, he appeals to this God and his character as he says, you're, you're gracious, you're long-suffering, you're abounding in goodness and truth to those who are in you. God, remember me, but also he by no means clears the guilty and visits the iniquity of them. And he says, Lord, I know I'm in a right standing with you, and I appeal to your mercy and your grace, but look upon these wicked people that don't and deal with them justly, Lord. He asks that, that God would save the son of his maidservant and would show him a sign for good that those who hate him may be ashamed because the Lord has helped and comforted him. David asks, God, give me a sign. Lord, show me that you're working. Give me evidence that you've heard my cry, that you're going to respond in my situation. Why? So that not only David would find peace and comfort, but so that the enemy would be ashamed. As in this moment, they see God is clearly on the side of this man. You know, that's the reality of what will happen one day when Jesus returns that there will be an undeniable sign as there is a trumpet sound as he comes back and returns and the dead in Christ rise up. There is an undeniable sign that will take place. 
And those who are against him will be ashamed. There's a battle that will take place. And all those who rise up against him will be taken out in a moment. Just by the power of his voice going forth. And everyone that's against him is going to be ashamed. And everyone that is on his side is going to shout and celebrate the victory that is theirs in Jesus. As I invite the worship team to come back up this morning, we're going to take of communion together. We take of communion because we do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. We remember that good and ready God who saw our problem of sin and came to be the solution. The God whose works are unlike any of our works, which is something we all celebrate today because our works couldn't remove our sin. Our works could not get us to heaven. But the God whose works are far above our works and there are no works like his, he is the one who came and lived the life we couldn't live. He's the one that came and died the death that we deserve. And today we do this in remembrance of him, that our life in Christ, the Christian life, is not about how good can you do it. It's about how good it's been done for you. And it's not about our strength or perfection. It's about his that we put on when we receive him as Lord and Savior. Now, our task is Psalm 86, 11, to go before the Lord and say, Teach me your ways, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That is the right response of the person who recognizes that it has all been accomplished in Jesus, the God to whom there is no other like him. And today we take this in remembrance of him to come back to that place at the foot of the cross and remind ourselves it is finished. It is finished. He has done it. And he's made a way of salvation. But I want to make clear this morning that communion is something we do as believers who have given our lives to Jesus to remember his sacrifice for us. In fact, Scripture says that if you don't believe, you shouldn't partake in this. In fact, it's even to your harm that you do so. But I want to give you an opportunity, an invitation this morning, if you have not given your life to Jesus, before we take this, to make that decision and then to join with us in this. Because that same God that David spoke of in his time of trouble that was good and ready to forgive is the God that we come here this morning to worship and celebrate, the God who never changes and is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the God that reaches out to you this morning and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That you can take his yoke upon you because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And he is gentle and lowly at heart. If you need to make that decision today, I want to make clear. There is no way to salvation except through Jesus. That we have all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What you must do today is confess 
repent and receive. Confess your sins before the Lord who already knows, who already sees them. You need to repent of them. You need to change the way you view your sin. You need to allow the Lord to teach you his ways and you need to walk in his truth. And then you receive him as Lord, as the one who died for your sins, the one who will forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and welcome you into the family of God. So is there anybody this morning that needs to raise their hand, that needs to make that decision this morning to give their life to Jesus? We want to give you that opportunity before we take of this together. Well, then this morning as we go ahead and we take this together, let's do so as the family of God that does this in remembrance of that sacrifice that was done for us on the cross. Let's take of the bread together as we remember Jesus' word that this is my body broken for you. God, we thank you for your body broken for us. As scripture describes, you were the perfect, spotless lamb of God, the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. We receive that work you've done on the cross. We recognize our need for it, Lord. And we say thank you this morning for your wondrous works for us. And then we take of this cup in remembrance of his blood that washes us clean of our sin. And it's the blood of the new covenant, the new relationship that we enter into with Jesus made possible because of his blood. We take this together this morning. And Jesus, we take this this morning remembering your blood spilled for us. That our sins had made us stained like scarlet, but it was your blood that has washed us white as snow. That there was no other way for salvation except through your sacrifice on the cross. Your blood poured out for us the atonement for our sins. And we say thank you this morning, Lord. We receive that payment for our sins. We recognize that nothing can wash away our sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Lord, we acknowledge that this morning. God, how great is your love. God, it's a love unlike any love we've ever known. Lord, it's a love that compels us to respond in worship, to surrender and submit 
to give thanks. God, it's a love we cannot experience and be the same. And Lord, today as we go from this place, we do so remembering that there is a good God who never leaves us or forsakes us, who is ready to forgive and abundant in mercy, in grace, and in truth. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. God, we thank you for your salvation. Lord, we thank you that you welcome us into your family as children of God. May our lives represent you well. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, there's going to be people up here available for prayer. And maybe like David, you find yourself wrestling in a difficult season. Well, then respond like David and don't cease to cry out to the Lord. Come and pray with someone who would love to join in that with you. But as we go today, may we go out knowing that there is a God who goes with us. And may we have that blessed assurance that he is full of compassion, gracious and long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. And may our desire be as David's this day, that he would teach us his way, that we might walk in his truth and unite our hearts to fear his name. Amen? Amen. We love you guys, and we'll see you next week.